Rick. 20 fun. Dude, we're <laughs> legal drinking age. We are. We made it. We made it. Cheers. So, Slauncha. All right, Brendan. Welcome. Welcome it's a new day. You. It's a great day. How are you doing? I mean, shoot. What's there to complain about? Wow. Yeah. I mean, nothing. You feeling pretty good? Feeling good. All right. Well, I guess we're just going to hop into this, Brendan. Buckle up because we're going. Who was our guest? Dr. Dan Conroy Beam. He's a professor from UCSB and he does a lot of research in mate preference and mate selection. That's right. Brennan, did you want to expand on that a little bit for people who haven't listened to the episode? Sure. We talked a lot about how he analyzes the preferences that people have and what's gone into existing mate selection in a way of almost reverse engineering how they could have come to those choices. And then he tries to make a model that would predict in a pool of simulated individuals who uh, who would match with the same mate based on those preferences. So it's pretty cool. Um, and they actually have a pretty, I mean, this is incredibly difficult to do, right? Yeah. But, they, but they actually, like, you know, I think the sample that he was, even experimenting with like of a, of a hundred people, they were able to get like 70%, I believe he said. Yeah. Um, it was like something like that. Exact matches, which is remarkable. Like that yeah. you can just based off of identification of preferences and like hierarchy within those preferences. And yeah, so it's pretty cool. Yeah. That, that you're talking about the couples mm-hmm. experiment to where, yeah. So the sample consisted of um, couples and they took their preferences put them into a simulation and then had them be random and saw whether or not that they would find them each other again within the simulation. Correct. Right. And that's like the 70% that they yeah. did find each they other. They were 70% of the time they were able to re-replicate the same couples. Yes. That's yeah. No, okay. That, that didn't, that wasn't right. 70% of the couples came back together. Not 70% yeah. of the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's still pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah, and there are some intricacies that I don't even know if I want to dive into with that, because the coding aspect of that, and yeah. I don't know, it's probably pretty basic. Probably not. I I don't. Well, it's well that. out of my range. Well out of my range as well. Yeah. So, Brendan, do you have anything that jumped out at you? Hmm. Um. I mean, it was just so cool to think about from an evolutionary perspective, what types of things instinctively get factored in. But then like on one level, like there's a very instinctive drive that is kind of like underlying everybody's like searching for a mate and all of that. Mm -hmm. But then on the other end, there's like this unbelievably complex system especially in the modern environment of how many people were exposed to and then the complete randomness of who we interact with yeah like the variability that we're subject to in the modern mate choice world is incredible yeah like the vastness is almost not comprehensible yeah i'm curious about how many people in relationships today have had known their partner before um, they were 
like actually intimate. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Like yeah. who knew who they were? Yeah. Prior, at, on some varying level of interaction from yeah. knowing them really well and then, you know, settling down together later or just knowing of that person and then somehow reconnecting later in life and then it working out. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Instead of just meeting them in a new place, hitting it off, staying together forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's a interesting, you know, like when I think about the, I saw a funny meme today, actually, it was something along the lines of like when you're 30 and um, in, in the dating market, like, you're not finding people because nobody's looking for you <laughs> or something like that. Some shady like meme or something like that. But no, it's interesting to think about because I think when you get older, it becomes increasingly more difficult. And I'm going to piece together like a few separated th themes and ideals socially and kind of like come to a conclusion here. Like, I mean, we've talked about before how crazy the world environment is right now. Like, you can't trust a damn thing you read on the internet. <laughs> like you don't know who the hell you're talking to on social media. So everybody's constantly guarded. And I feel like we, we get into these very um, defensive, you know, we're probably constantly pushed to like over exaggerate or lie about certain scenarios, man. There's really something to be said about meeting somebody when you're younger or at least knowing who they are and feeling like you really understand who that person is. Mm -hmm. And I think in the modern landscape, again, with the high, high variability and number of options and like, like there's plenty of fish in the sea, like that old saying, like knowing somebody before and when you're younger and like growing up with them, in, a, in some sense, you know, not necessarily like being friends and growing up that way, but there's a huge trust factor that I think and a comfort factor that comes from knowing a little bit of the depth of history behind a person that you want to settle down with, right? It's a risky mm -hmm. thing to join your life with somebody. Yeah. You know, and if you like, if you're in your 30s and you're meeting somebody from across the country, like that takes two you know, highly trusting people to enter that relationship like at their maximum. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, whereas like if you knew the person and you understand that person and you like are committed to like developing yourself and that person at the same time and together, I think there's a, it's a much more um, high quality bond that's comes out of that. Yeah. I guess just from an evolutionary perspective, it just, it never, it was never ne safety. as necessary, right? Yeah. It was, I, you know, yes, safety, understanding, and the trust. But I would also say that now more than ever, trust is important because you aren't in the same tribe. You did, you would have known everybody yeah. in the past. So that wouldn't really have even been a factor. But now we have to like go seek that out in a much more mm -hmm. deliberate way that I feel like could be a big cause for you know, the declining, you know, solid marriage rates and the divorce rates and all that. Right. Yeah. I remember some type of research. I don't remember the experiment specifically, but it was dealing with familiarity and how, like, if you were to just see somebody once, not know who they are, and then they were compared with somebody else that you've never seen before, 
you'd be more likely to like select that person that you've seen or mm-hmm. attribute them as nicer or kinder mm-hmm. um, than the person that you've never seen before. You mean even if it's just somebody that looks like somebody you know? No, if this is just some random person, but if you've seen them before. But you didn't register that you saw them? You registered that you saw them. Okay. And so there's just that hint of familiarity. Just that familiarity puts people at ease. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And I don't remember the specifics of that experiment, but I remember that, yeah, just that like one interaction of like visibly seeing that person's face mm-hmm. was something that set off uh, some type of comfort to where they would select them or attribute them as as more positive than the opposite person who was yeah, possibly more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Or possibly nicer. Yeah. Very interesting. It is very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to dive into this topic. We discussed this in the conversation. I'm gonna I'll give a brief explanation for people who haven't listened. Um, but so Dr. Conroy Beam explained that there were kind of two like key theories in terms of uh how we go about mate selection or how we think about mate preference and he identified the weighted sum as the first one Mm -hmm. and that consists of identifying specific qualities that you're really into about a person and that you think very highly of and then if the person that you're looking for has one of those and it's the one that you prefer the most then you really like that person because they really express that quality The second one was the ideal prototype to where we configure this ideal person in our minds and then compare that person in our minds to all of the potential partners that we have in the world. And that's how we go about basing where we think we are with our preference of that potential mate. Mm -hmm. Brendan, I shared a little bit about my bit. I can go on about that in this conversation about Mm -hmm. what I think is more fitting for me. Um, but what's more fitting for you? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I want to say it's probably a combination to be honest, to like give you the abort, like boring answer, (laughs) but I think it's a combo. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I've definitely, like, if I think back on the, how much did both of those play out in reality for me? I'd say they both are, like real they were both factors did one outweigh the other at all i don't know <laughs> it's it's a hard one to tell like because i think my subconscious could have been working in ways that i probably wasn't as attuned to in the moment let's look at that <laughs> you like that yeah um shout out to our episode before dr conroy beam yeah um yeah, so I think because I think if I was telling you what high school Brendan was thinking about, it was like you know, just being in the dating market and like you get out there and like you you kind of I think it's easier to visualize because I don't know enough like honestly like you don't know enough about yourself yet in high mm. school right so then it's a lot of growth and development I would say. It probably started as the I like the uh, what, what was the second one? The ideal prototype. The ideal prototype, but then it evolves into okay. Now, if this relationship is gonna last, 
the the preference quality hierarchy ranking system and mm-hmm. making sure that there's enough of them there that like you know justify your happiness right like yeah make sure you can you're happy in the relationship that you're in so i'd say both but in different phases and in different times different levels of maturity different levels of insightfulness yeah i think they're both important actually i don't think it would be you know but again then that transitions almost out of what um dan's work is really about make choice right choice is like in my mind that's the first first step Mm -hmm. um like to make the selection but then like to (laughs) to carry out your life with the person that you've picked is a whole different realm that's kind of not his expertise but Mm -hmm. but yeah i'd say both it's a good answer yeah yeah i'm not going all willy-nilly trying to get i'm gonna give you a real answer (laughs) i appreciate that yeah yeah another thing that i heard recently in the like topic of like the purpose like the evolutionary purpose of of like a spousal relationship is really for the person like the self-development so the way i heard it described is like the the underlying forces that lie within like a good healthy relationship are two individuals who see something who who see, so you and your spouse look at each other and you see something in the other person that you admire about them and that you like about them and that you and and then you gain this vested interest in wanting to make that person the best person that they can possibly be and they feel the same way they have a vested interest in making you the best person you can possibly be and then you carry out your life doing that you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and i feel like that's a really interesting way of thinking about those types of choices because like that's really what it is and like through two people help trying to make each other and themselves the best person they could possibly be you know, a lot of good things come out of that. And I think that's met with lots of uh, challenges along the way, obviously. And But I'm curious how much people think of it in that sense when we look at things like divorce rates, right? Like they're crazy high. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a missing element of that where people aren't thinking that deeply about the choices that they make. Well, that... I feel like explains divorce pretty well. Mm -hmm. Like once that aspect that you described of like really wanting the other person to succeed and better themselves is wiped out. Mm -hmm. Like I could totally see how a divorce could follow suit. Right. You're no longer looking out for the other person as much as you are yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's a, a conversation and topic that I think would be really interesting to get into the divorce rates, mm-hmm. why they've spiked so much. Yeah. What is going on with relationships? Yeah, there's a lot of research around like the decline of spirituality with that too. Mm-hmm. Not like any particular religion or whatever, but just a lack of ability to express spirituality and a lack of uh, spiritual communities to like that. I think they're positive forces in people's lives, right? When they are, when they find themselves in a spiritual community with other people and in that community, I think there's a, that's a good positive force for people. But 
as people lose their trust in the traditional faiths and don't have alternative options, we find ourselves in a position where those positive forces are not existing in people's lives and therefore their relationships are much easier to uh, lose hope in. What is spirituality? Would you generally define it as a belief in something bigger than yourself? I honestly don't know that I have a really great answer for that because I feel like it deserves a really good definition. I would say that's definitely an element. Mm -hmm. Like how is one spiritual and how is one not spiritual? I would say spirituality is, is a almost like a commitment and understanding that there's more at play and at work in the world than you're capable of understanding mm. in a sense. And I think spirituality comes out in the moments where people grapple with those ideas and those things that are almost not understandable and try to come to sense with them in in some way and that can be in a wide variety of of methods. That could be meditation, that could be through, you know, deep philosophical conversation, mm. it could be through spiritual like spiritual religious practice. But I think it's spirituality is like the navigating of exploring and coming to terms with like those great unknowns that are out there. Yeah. I feel like I've been deep into this, or at least I'm at like an existential point right now in my life. I feel like throughout the conversations that we've had and then seeing just like different media posts or even just like different theories and research, I'm like, man, are we right? Like, are we, are we right about this stuff? Like we, we do science and mm -hmm. there's a scientific method and it has a very strong basis and there's psychometrics and statistics and all, all that good stuff. Um, is it just a bunch of try-hard stuff that we're like missing the point? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I guess I I guess I'm wanting to cling to like is this true? You know, and mm -hmm. that's just not the case. Like like most scientists and the researchers that we've had on, they're like, "Well, we don't know for sure, but this is what the research shows." Right. And I lo I love that. I respect that a lot. Oh, for sure, yeah. But it also leaves don't me Don't claim you have an answer unless you genuinely do. Yeah. Right? Which that's my that's my thing. Does anybody genu genuinely have an answer? I think the better question is, does anybody genuinely have an answer that satisfies what you may feel or already believe? Yeah. I think the bigger question is, how much are you willing to allow your perspective to change to match the answer some people seem to have? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, everybody's answer is personal. Yeah, for sure. Spirituality is highly personal, I would say. I don't know if I like it. <laughs> Another interesting thing is that I heard somebody like compare and contrast like the uh, classical philosophical topics and literature to uh, like psychology and psychotherapy and things of that nature as bo like both being very much so in the same 
uh, same vein of like seeking a more a, a deeper understanding of things that are very difficult to understand, right? Like it's a highly spiritual explorative field of psychology and like philosophy is a much more generalized um less scientific maybe but still very much so like um theoretical in the way that you like test and run hypotheses and make observations mm-hmm. um but I'll, it was funny because they were this person who i was watching this interview of was getting interviewed and they said they almost went into psychology but they didn't and they ended up going towards like classical literature and philosophy and the person who was interviewing them was like well you're t- you're talking the same thing you were just you were driven by the same drive of spirituality you just decided that there was a better way to scratch your own itch then mm. psychology wasn't that and it was through like ancient philosophical teachings and writings and ways of learning wow i i like that so thinking about spirituality because i know that like in our modern world today, spirituality has separated itself from just being religious, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that the way you described spirituality makes a lot of sense just about the origins of religion mm-hmm. for me in thinking that people were struggling with these questions, struggling with the unknown, and were like, hey, I really want to try to figure this out. These are some of my hunches and thoughts, and then let's throw some bullshit on top of that, and let's make this something that we all believe in <laughs> yeah it's i don't know it's like even because i've been really caught up lately in these uh are you familiar with the i i don't think i'm going to say this right but the eleusinian mysteries from ancient greece no that's a word though yeah it's about the town of eleusis in greece where that became like the spiritual hub of ancient greece like pre-major religion mm-hmm. and it was really like a religion in a way for of the time um and eleusis was a place where a lot of scholars have really dug deep into this now and they're finding that a majority of the um spiritual practices that were being taken part in were going hand in hand with like uh some form of psychedelic experience wow that was like kind of bridging them to this this mindset of like connecting with this spiritual transcendent energy in a way that they never were able to do before and uh like through technology and being able to understand like the things that are in some of these ancient like pottery and bowls and things like that they found that there's a high likelihood that a lot of the uh ancient traditions in greece that very and the timing of it is very likely to have been in place pre-christianity and then as christianity developed they may have adopted a lot of these things so like Mm -hmm. the body and blood of christ in the catholic mass um is an obviously a symbolic ritual that happens in the mass but they've also discovered that that could have been a practice in these uh in eleusis in ancient greece that would have been um like a spiked wine Mm. where they would have done that to like you know they say that it's there's so much incredible symbolism but like that you know you're taking in the body and the blood of christ like that's the word the language that we use and 
you know, a lot of the ways they probably would have spiked this wine, wine, alcohol, we call them spirits, right? For a very intentional reason, because you're ingesting the spirit of something that takes you psychologically, it changes you in the moment. And then the bread, the blood or the body and, and blood of Christ. So the body being bread or the host in the um, another thing, calling it the host, that's another interesting term oh we use. God, but yeah. also the fact that, you know, if you know anything about the Salem witch trials, the mold that was growing on their bread back in the day was the laced with a fungus that was similar to LSD. And that's what was going on with the Salem witch trials. So they hypothesized that this combination of a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of the fungus that grows on, that grew on this bread was giving them this experience that was making them like come to this like highly spiritual and Eleusis was a hub for these experiences. Oh and, it, and they were like the masters of taking people through these like really deep rituals with uh, like uh, with like ergot is the name of the, the fungus that they were using there. So yeah, it's super fascinating. And yeah, the symbolism and the way that we use words and then the kind of like lose their meaning. Another one that I heard recently and I think this lends itself right into this whole like spirituality versus um, like mo- in modern times kind of discussion is another really common uh, Christian phrasing that gets put out there a lot is the meek shall inherit the earth. And there's been a lot of, you know, when I heard that growing up, it was the meek meaning like the people, like the quiet unassumed like the people who are just like you know you almost think of it as weak when you hear it right oh yeah like and it's it's a very it's a very confusing phrase but i heard somebody who did a new translation on the word meek and to give a metaphor for what it probably means something along the lines of somebody who is trained with a sword but knows when to use it doesn't just wield their sword like in like out of control but somebody who's very conscious and intentional of when to use the sword and and keeps it sheathed most of the time because um it's about that like sense of understanding and control and mm. very you know monkish kind of tendencies to like be mm-hmm. uh very introspective so i thought that was an interesting translation too there's something about moving slow like silently and slowly I, I believe that was one of the 48 laws of power was like mm. move sli- silently and slowly so that nobody knows what your intentions are. Mm. And this m- might be stretching it a little bit, but I, I do think there's something to that. Like, I feel like once you start to say like what your next moves are, even if it's like a positive thing, like if I was going to say, Oh, Brennan, I'm going to go do this, or I have plans to do this. I have plans to, you know, build an empire or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Then like you start getting critiques from it. Like if I was just to like slowly silently make moves Mm -hmm. and get this thing done, I don't know. I guess there's less distractions. You almost invite doubt. Yeah. And I think that's what I'm getting at. When you, when you verbalize it in certain instances, like when you, especially when you proclaim something that may be a little bit audacious, right? Yeah. You know, if it's something that like everybody thinks you can do or you've done a million times, it's nothing. But if you are going to set out to do something that would be, you know, of high accomplishment, 
yeah, you invite criticism mm-hmm. when you put it out there. Yeah. And it's makes it all the more challenging to like wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. And you now informed others of how to like tear it down or how to stop you mm-hmm. pretty much too. Yeah. Cause now they know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, man, that's a really interesting. Yeah. One. The meek. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I've told you obviously about the word sin before and what that, that meaning of like being translated to missing the mark. Yeah. That is like, fascinating like, too. Yeah. And how everybody should have like an aim in their life. And yeah, it's very interesting. It is. The symbolism is really amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm really sad that my Catholic education did not teach me anything about the symbolism. Yeah. I'm even like curious, even just like gr- ancient Greece, right? Like I'm trying, I, the, one of the hardest things for me to do is to consistently think through our history books and think of two separate circumstances that are being presented to me, but then try and picture them on the same timeline, right? Like ancient Greek philosophers are BC. So like, where were these ancient Greek stoic, where was the intersection with the, the history of Christianity? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, cause they overlapped. Yeah. There's no doubt that they, they had an intersection, but I have no clue what that intersection would be or would look like, because there had to have been a point where the ancient Greek methods, the philosophies, stoicism, all of that inner, like at some point had to have either butted heads or was adopted by Christianity or, or somehow they were intertwined Mm -hmm. in some kind of major way. And I feel like that's an unbelievably fascinating thing to explore. Yeah. You know, that is another thing that I really like talking about the Greeks and some of the other stuff is just like the idea of the way that they were so dedicated to the developing the self you know, and like both physically and mentally, like, you know, the development of schools and like the Socratic method and, and like inquiry in general. Right. But mm-hmm. then also the physical, like the body and how, you know, one of the biggest physical practices out there back in those days was wrestling. Like people wrestled together. Oh yeah. And Greco Roman. Yeah. Greco Roman wrestling and all of that. So it's interesting that they were wrestling with each other and wrestling with like ideas and like this idea of wrestling was like and just grappling with things was so entrenched in who they were and it like another piece of symbolism was the the closest translation i've been able to find for pluto was the broad-shouldered one Mm. which is so interesting because he was not only broad in his ability to grapple with people because he was actually a a really like respected wrestler of the time but he was also one of the most respected thinkers also so like it just goes like it's interesting the way the names kind of come to be yeah um but yeah there's just a huge piece of history that i feel like is missed in all of this well in a thousand years they'll have a lot of data and records from what we're doing because we now have technology yeah so hopefully from this point on, we can actually learn more from history and it can hopefully, be spread to the masses. More, more people get access so we can synthesize more of that information and come to hopefully some conclusions that we already probably had yeah. in the first place. That we probably had 4,000 years ago. Yeah. A billion years ago. Yeah. Well, it, and it makes me think too, like this whole idea that you were talking about 
a while ago about like doing less. Oh man, you know subtracting. I mean? And just the power of subtra- of taking away rather than um, like what do you have to add to make this thing better like as a general thought process that a lot of people go through. But like, mm-hmm. man, sometimes like, like, and I think that's to your point, right? Sometimes we're, we get so caught up in the new theories and philosophies and sciences and whatever that are trying to answer a bunch of like existential questions, but maybe it's just less. Maybe this is something that I think about a lot with my clinical work, like as a therapist, like, I think it's easy for a lot of clinicians to think like, I'm not doing enough. Um, and I need to add something onto this when maybe that's just going to mess things up. Like I need to add another coping mechanism or another like mindfulness skill or something or some type of theoretical component. And I'm like, man, maybe we should cut it back and just be like, Hey, just be real with this person. Like just really try to be a good person to this person. Um, and of course there's other intricacies and details that need to go at play, but yeah, instead of adding all these things, like maybe we do need to subtract in so many different ways of our life. I mean, it's such a, I, the only way I can think that this regularly gets brought up in daily life is the 80, 20 principle. Are you familiar with that? I don't know. It's like the idea where like, if you're trying to solve a problem or like figure things out, a lot of times people will do it in like sales, but it's like, it's the idea that 20% of your whatever is going to get of your inputs is going to give you 80% of your results. Mm. So focus on that 20. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck if you're solid there. Mm. You know what I mean? So I think that's like what you're saying is like, what 20% are we doing with our clients that is giving them the absolute most life changing information and, and piece of this. And why are we not just like making sure every piece of that we're squeaking out rather than, adding seven other things and then it gets just gets diluted and then you're taking away from that 80 and the 20% can't even achieve the 80 anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Dude, of, yeah. Yes. This, so this book, the power of showing up written by Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson, they've written multiple books. Um, they've written the whole brain and the yes brain. And it's all about like child development and how to show up for your child. And they, this is the most recent one they wrote the power of showing up. And the other books, The Whole Brain Child and The Yes Brain, kind of detail a lot of like the neurological processes of brain development and how to really care for children and promote their development. And they're great. They're amazing. And he subtracted with this book by saying, like, if you show up consistently in an empathic way, like your kid's probably going to have a pretty good development. Mm -hmm. You just need to show up. You need to be there. Yeah. Like, almost forget what I said before. Like yeah. if you can add that stuff, please do. Yeah. But this subtract piece, oh man, mm-hmm. it is, it is so essential to our world. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And if, so yes, listeners, if there's something that you feel like you're stressed about or you're doing too much of, think about taking something away from it. Mm-hmm. Cause that is something that I've been thinking about the past, like two months and I feel like I've added so much stuff to my life that I, I have so much that I can take away. Yeah. It's beautiful. Beautiful it process. All right, Brendan. All right. This has been nice. We started off well on topic and we got way off topic. Like always. But it was great. 
I don't know if we've ever stayed on topic consistently throughout the entire thing. It would honestly be a shame if we did. Yeah, that that one would probably suck. Yeah. All right, well, we have two guests on our next episode, and it's a bit of a different topic. Mm. Nothing that we've explored before, um, and it's, yeah, just stay tuned. Yeah, we're you, getting out there. We're getting out there. <laughs> All right, everybody, have a good night, evening, morning, weekend, whatever you're listening this to. Wherever at. this finds you, we hope it's a great one. Yes. See ya.